Well, thank you so much for joining us. I I just feel like you have so much to offer people. So many people Mm. are just learning about this amazing brew that comes out of the Amazon. Mm. And, and I I feel like you're someone who can really give people insight into how to use the medicine, what it's for, and, and also how to keep it sacred. And that's another thing, reason why we want to do this show is to really, uh, hammer it in. Like what is ayahuasca? Thank you. And a, a lot of people just don't understand what ayahuasca is. Uh, I, I've done it, you know, maybe 10 times now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, by no means am I calling myself an expert, but each time I do it, I, I discover a little bit more about the medicine and, and feel like it has tremendous potential, especially in mm-hmm. the West, to heal mental health disorders. And not only that, just heal lack of spirit, lack of spirituality. Oh, yeah. What, what do you think ayahuasca is? Well, that's interesting. Uh, even now, like, so I've been working with it 18 years, as you know, and um, it's a really difficult question to answer still relative to what it does and how it works. But generally, it's the basic description is that it's a psychoactive tea, which is what it is, because there's two plants combined that only work in synergy together, which is really interesting. And um, it consistently, the mystery of it is that it consistently causes what we call spiritual experiences or really deep um, introspective, um, what would you call it, like psychological exploration. Like you can really get into the psyche with ayahuasca that you, in a way that you can't with any other entheogen or even substance that I'm aware of. And for those who aren't quite familiar, what is an entheogen? It's really interesting. It, it almost literally translates to God within. So it's substances that cause a spiritual experience or a catalyst for a, a spiritual experience. All right. So it's relatively new. I, I think in the last maybe 20 years that I first heard that term, entheogen, um, as opposed to a psychedelic. Like for me, I would say like um, LSD would be a psychedelic and a really effective one, depending on what you're using it for. Uh, whereas mushrooms, ayahuasca, more of the organic uh, substances are considered entheogens. And and I like that word too because I feel like the mm. word psychedelic has been so oh, yeah. there's been so much negative propaganda toward exactly. it. If yeah. you even now saying journalistically I'm focusing on psychedelics, some people are like, What? Exactly. But when I say entheogens, it's like, oh, that sounds yeah. interesting. What are those? Yeah, and I think too, because psychedelic brings up people tripping. You know, the idea of like uh what you're experiencing on a quote unquote psychedelic is just you tripping, so somehow it's not a valid experience. Whereas the experiences people have uh, on entheogens are usually really cathartic and deep and long-lasting. They're, they're actually transformative. So I like the separation too. But in that context, psychedelic or LSD could actually be an entheogen depending on the context of how it's used. Yeah. And so how is ayahuasca made? I, I know that somehow <laughs> the natives in the Amazon figured out how to combine these two plants yeah, out of miraculous. thousands and thousands of plant species. They didn't, they weren't experts, uh, mm-hmm. botanists by any means. Um, and, and so can you describe for us how ayahuasca is made and how the heck natives figured out how to make this? Yeah, you know, that's the big mystery, but um, it's really fascinating. A group of anthropologists uh, early on contacted a lot of uh, separated tribes, you know, and asked all the shamans, so how did you know to combine these two plants? And in every case, they said the same thing. The plants told us, right? And the interesting thing about that to me is it's like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because when you're in an ayahuasca experience, particularly in nature, you could actually see someone like walking around and having the experience of a plant talking to you, right? And I kind of think, well, that makes sense. But they weren't on it when they discovered that. Yeah, so a good friend of ours, uh, he leads uh, ceremonies in the Santo Daime tradition, and that's an ayahuasca church out of Brazil. Um, he was telling us a story about like biophotons and how at night in the jungle, 
um, plants actually um, are kind of illuminated. And he says, and given how sensitive you become in ayahuasca, you know, and other entheogens, because they were doing other kind of ritual ceremonies there. For him, it kind of made sense that you're so sensitized to nature living in the jungle. He said, you probably actually could walk around. And if you're looking for a particular plant um, for like a healing modality, that it might speak to you. But the interesting thing about that, um, uh, there's a new research that shows that uh, most, the predominant healing modality in the rainforest is purgatory. It's finding plants that will cause you to purge. If you get poisoned or sick, you wouldn't be able to get it out of your body quickly. And the at least the Psychotropis viridis, uh, the, what they call the female aspect of the ayahuasca tea, um, looks like a lot of those plants. Um, so there's actually some speculation that most likely they were looking for healing plants and stumbled, oh, take this one, it'll make you purge. And guess what? You also trip for 12 hours. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so it's a speculation that maybe that's how it was kind of discovered. But the fact that they combine the two, though, is still pretty miraculous. So ayahuasca is made by it. It is a brew. It, yeah. it tastes. I compare it to. It tastes like stale <laughs> coffee mixed with cough syrup. Something that it instantly. Yeah. What would you say, Tony? It kind of makes you want to gag. It's kind of like uh, molasses mixes or uh, meets vinegar. I don't know. <laughs> 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 you them together, but you know, that depends on uh, how it's brewed. Um, we've or I've had brews that are really closer to literally like honey, and some mm -hmm. that are really vile like vinegar, and you can barely get them down. And and it's this thick. Uh, brown substance. It's it's most made, often, yeah. And it, it's made by combining the uh, chacruna leaves, often, or right. or a plant that contains DMT with the mm -hmm. ayahuasca vine, yeah, which is the MAOI. Copy, right? You know the scientific terminology better I than I do. Had to. Yeah. And and so that allows the DMT to be absorbed by your body, which then sends you on this incredible trip. And and something that yep. I think makes ayahuasca so fascinating for so many people, including myself, I used mm. it for a lot of healing, not only spirituality, mm. but also to kind of process traumatic events that had happened in my life. And what I felt like the ayahuasca did was actually get into my brain and my subconscious and release trapped memories. Yeah, literally. And then I was able to process them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so fascinating about this brew and what makes it so applicable to being able to heal people in, in the West because we just don't have many outlets to purge this trauma. Precisely. So, so many of us are walking around carrying this bottled up trauma with us. What, what ways have you seen ayahuasca heal people or even heal yourself? That's such a big question. Yeah, we could spend <clears throat> all day just talking about that. Um, but the short answer is, um, very similar to what you're talking about, um, it, it is very fascinating that, and maybe it's also because of the ceremony, because we know it has the ability to do this, we've probably tailored the ayahuasca ceremonies to some degree so that they can um, actually be a catalyst for these experiences. But um, the most common experience and the thing I've most seen healed in ayahuasca ceremonies are um, depression, you know, and any kind of trauma-related either illness or, well, mental or physical illness related to trauma. And it does it mainly by doing exactly what you just brought up. Somehow it very safely brings people back to the original trauma or back to the origin of whatever the dis-ease is. And you're actually able to move into that space in a safe way and process it. And the beautiful thing about, I think, entheogens versus psychedelics, drugs, tripping, is that it's a lasting effect. You know, when people say, oh, well, of course you had that experience, you were tripping. Like, no, not true, because the next morning, with a, at least with a ceremony that has an integration period. Um, I've had people, just recently actually, uh, a friend shared with me that at an ayahuasca experience she was at, that um, she went because she was on her last leg you know, with depression. It, it got to the point where she was barely able to function. And she was on all the drugs and various uh, dosages of those drugs. And she finally thought, okay, I'll try this ayahuasca thing. 
And it's now been six months and she's been completely off all medications and back in the swing of life. And for her, she says, I'm healed. Yeah, so she's a complete, uh, I don't know, cheerleader now for ayahuasca as a healing modality. It really is fascinating. Mm. I think so many antidepressants, the prescription ones, mm. they're kind of putting like a Band-Aid on the bullet wound. Yeah, yeah. They don't actually get in and address the trauma. It's just fixing the symptoms. Precisely. Whereas even for me personally and so many people you've interacted with, Tony, uh, it, it really gets in there and purges this trauma. One time I was on <sighs> ayahuasca and I had... My parents had had a pretty uh, traumatic divorce when I was mm. a kid. I mean, it was it was pretty um, it, it was tough to witness as a child, and I didn't right. realize I had absorbed so much of their mm. fighting. And one of the first things ayahuasca did when I was on it was bring me back to that moment when I was a kid, and I started processing memories of my parents yeah. fighting when I was four, and I didn't realize that I'd been carrying that baggage with me exactly my entire life, which which led to uh, anxiety later in life. And when I was able to process that and, and woke up the next morning after my ayahuasca experience, I just felt like a Liberated, tremendous amount yeah. of, yeah, yeah, I just literally. felt like my heart had been open and these bricks had been taken off my shoulders. And, and it was just so fascinating that journalistically, I knew at that point, I'm like, people need to know about this medicine. It can help so many people who yeah. just feel like there's no hope. It's amazing. You know, when I got introduced to ayahuasca 18 years ago through the Santo Daime Church, which is again, the ayahuasca church that um, started in Brazil, and uh, and friend invited me to participate in one of those ceremonies. And my First thought, I remember like the weeks following the ceremony. It was really powerful. But I thought, well, this is really awesome, but I don't want to keep doing this because I'm concerned about my psychological, you know, and mental well-being. And uh, a lot of people have that concern, you know. But shortly thereafter, I read a, a uh, study that they had done in Brazil, which was part of his legalization process there. And they researched people that had been drinking like regularly, like twice a month for like almost like over a 30-year period. And not only were they completely healthy, they were healthier and smarter. They tested higher cognitively over this period of time, you know. So at that point, I thought, well, that's it, because I'm really interested in this medicine and I'm going to study it. You know, and for me, it's like, yeah, 18 years later, I am definitely a smarter person in terms of being more conscious. And um, the ability to uh, be centered in one's own being, I would call it, and to assimilate information um, has definitely improved, you know, in my life. And I've watched so many people go through this amazing curve, you know, of coming in wounded in various ways, either like physically or traumatically, you know, psychologically. And within like a year of on and off again, going to South America, wherever they're finding access to the medicine, it's profound, the transformation. Yeah. So at some point I thought, that's it. I want to dedicate myself to at least being an advocate, you know? Yeah. And having said that, I want to make that clear. Like I am positively not an advocate for quote-unquote drug use, you know, and don't advocate that anybody does anything illegal. At the same time, I realize how ridiculous is it that we have these amazing substances that are actually safe and proven effective, yet we're all cheerleading, you know, alcohol and poisonous pharmaceuticals that are relatively ineffective. And, and alcohol, if, for people who want to know really about dangerous drugs, alcohol is the most dangerous <laughs> exactly. drug, alcohol and tobacco. I mean, literally, it's poison. Right. And, and they're both legal. So then at that point, and you celebrated. have to realize that, that this isn't based on science. These regulations aren't right. based on science. And, and it's really traumatic to know that nature is being made illegal. That we're, we're literally being yep. told you cannot ingest 
a, a tea that comes from two natural plants yeah. or, or mushrooms that, that grow on. I was sharing that with a friend on the drive here, actually. Yeah, this very story that even looking at like cannabis, you know, like I've, it's really wonderful that we're living in the time to see like 20 states, I guess now it's either legal or in the process of. Yet when you think about it, here's this plant that grows literally like a weed on the side of the freeway, if we allowed it to, that everybody has access to. Yeah, it's amazing the amount of controversy around this plant where there's no scientific evidence anywhere researched that shows that it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're telling young people at like age 18 or 21, whatever it is here now, like you're a beautiful ride of passages and you can now go get drunk as often as you want to, <laughs> you know, but don't smoke that pot. Yeah. And I think alcohol is one of the most boring drugs there is. It oh makes you gosh, yeah. tune out from your life. And that's the difference between al socially, alcohol yeah. and, and entheogens and psychedelics is alcohol tune makes in. you tune out, whereas yeah. entheogens and psychedelics actually force you. I mean, you are forced, <laughs> especially Literally. on ayahuasca, oh, yeah, particularly. to focus yeah. on your life. Like Mother Ayahuasca comes in and says, you need to fix this. And, and honey, what are you doing there? You need to fix yep. that as well. And, and Like it or not. And yeah. it can be a really intense experience. Um, yeah. Do you have any warnings for people thinking of doing ayahuasca? Because it's not all rainbows and butterflies. Like it can be a horrific yet really rewarding experience at the same time, which makes it even more insane. Yeah. It's not so much a warning as it is um, the caution, which is the obvious one, is to do your research and make sure that you find a location um, with a group that has a good reputation. You know? And, you know, what's really cool is now there's even um, – websites, and I believe Reset Me will do this too, that will actually give you recommendations of uh, various locations in Peru, various places in the world where it's legal, um, that actually have a good solid reputation of uh, quality, you know, I think in terms of how they're administering the medicine and the making of it too. And uh, yeah, I feel that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast was particularly in the African-American community is to bring ayahuasca kind of out of the closet, even though it's becoming very popular, as you know, in mainstream media. At the same time, I meet people all the time that go, what? That's like the big joke is <laughs> we actually have this T-shirt uh, in our community that says, what?" <laughs> you know? And uh, I just feel like, gosh, the more I have met so many people that are suffering from various ailments that I know from my experience they would be able to heal from if they had access legally to ayahuasca so, in a safe setting, which, of course, could be regulated if it were legalized. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's one of the greatest human rights tragedies of this century that oh these gosh, medicines yeah. aren't available. You see yeah. so many people suffering from addictions, lack mm -hmm. of spirituality, lack of purpose Connection, in life. Yeah. I mean, ayahuasca just isn't for people who are ill. It's also, I, I believe it can help almost everybody if, if you're just stuck in a rut and, and you just need mm. to kind of step outside of your life to then reevaluate decisions you're making and really choose yeah. your correct path. And that's often what causes a lot of anxiety and depression yeah. when you're not on that right path. Exactly. And, yeah. and ayahuasca points you in that direction. Just that lack of, yeah, as you bring up connection, I call it. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. The reason why I, I started advocating and being supportive of um, entheogens just being legalized and more widely acceptable was I was doing a lot of political activism um, for a while, like going to rallies and carrying signs and marching and yelling. And at this one rally in L.A., I remember like we got over this overpass <clears throat> on the freeway and it was the one place that the police had not um, kind of like, um, you know, they presented themselves as, oh, yeah, we're uh, going to support your rally, your march. So we're going to have guards, you know, posted. What they were actually doing was protecting the route. So really only people that were already aware of what we were doing were present. Right. So we were very ineffective. But we get to this overpass where suddenly we could uh, be seen by the traffic. 
So everybody ran over, we're holding their signs out. All of a sudden, the police were really active and like keeping us from doing that. But somehow I had this little awakening in that moment. I suddenly stopped and I thought, you know, this is a complete waste of time. Like, I'm really glad that there are people that are active on the front lines um, with all the issues, you know, humanity is facing right now. Um, but I thought, you know, and subsequently after that, I fell into this depression. And I was able at the time to pretty much lock myself into my house for like two weeks and uh, just read poetry and spiritual texts. And, you know, I'd been drinking ayahuasca and I wanted to understand that more. And from that, I had the most obvious epiphany. I thought, well, gosh, actually, all of the problems humanity is facing are stemming from a lack of connection, if you look at it really. And a lack of connection spiritually or a lack of a sense of connection to um, our greater environment, basically, and to each other. And I thought, so the real problem we're facing, the evolution that needs to take place is in consciousness. And I thought, well, that's it. That's where I'm going to do my work. So for me, my work with the advocacy and support of entheogenic use is a form of activism, without a doubt. The evolution of human consciousness, my entire life shifted so that everything I do from music to working with young people is all around the evolution of human consciousness, period. Yeah. So obviously, entheogens play a huge and valuable role in that. How is it that you think that, uh, you know, in our conversations before mm. you've brought up that you think that ayahuasca would be a tremendous asset to bring into the inner cities and especially in black communities, communities Absolutely. carrying so much trauma. Mm. Uh, how do you think ayahuasca could, could help these communities? It's such a huge subject. And you know, we touched on this a little bit uh, prior to this formal meeting. But, uh, you know, I watched this beautiful documentary uh, on the BBC. I think it's called uh, The Ghost in Our Genes. Yeah, and these two researchers, I think it's Marcus and Pembrey, um, they're able to prove I'm very condensing this information, but their research basically shows that the trauma that our great-grandparents experienced, you know, even further back, um, affected their genes, literally, and uh, to their amazement, young people born like two or three generations later have the same diseases or are affected by the same traumas, basically. So... That, you know, overlapping with the work of epigenetics, you know, that, yes, we might inherit these disorders from our grandparents um, that were brought on by some trauma. In this case, their research, like a famine that took place. Um, but now we know that we're not confined to our genes, you know, to our DNA. And that, and with research I did on the placebo effect, you know, um, particularly at the last MAPS conference I was at, um, they were, a lot of the researchers were sharing that, wow, you know, we realize now that what's been missing from a lot of our research on things like ayahuasca is the set and setting. And one of the reasons that they're so effective is that you actually have a group of people in an intentional setting, you know, working with a leader or shaman in this case, ayahuasquero. Um, the very fact that everybody is there with the intention of healing, you mix that intention and placebo effect with epigenetics and our ability to turn switches on and off. And I started realizing through my own experience, um, which we'll talk about, um, I go, wow, absolutely, ayahuasca has the ability to take you into the trauma. And not only that, I'm convinced that it's actually flipping switches on and off because a lot of people are being healed by things that nothing else has been able to heal them from. And so what ways have you seen, uh, you've worked with people who, mm -hmm. from these communities who have taken ayahuasca and had their lives transformed. Mm -hmm. Can you explain some of those ways? Well, I'll just use my own as an example uh, and relating this to the uh, African-American community. Um, I did an ayahuasca monologue. Um, they're, they're actually called the ayahuasca monologues, and they're on YouTube. And in mine, I shared this experience I had. Um, I was invited to do a ceremony. Um, it was all men, and I uh, was very intrigued by that. 
And during this ceremony, I'm condensing the story dramatically. At some point, I'm in ceremony, and I become aware that um, there's a, a man standing next to me, which is no big deal. You know, but at some point, I kind of like, you know, I'm singing the songs, you know, and, and the ayahuasca thing is very beautiful, and having this experience of like, oh, my brotherhood, I'm here with all the guys, you know. And then I start realizing, like, wait, everybody that is participating in this ceremony is accounted for. Like, who's this person standing next to me? <laughs> and I look over, and lo and behold, it's my father who had died five years earlier. Wow. Right? Yeah, and as vividly standing next to me as I'm, you know, you sitting in front of me. And uh, talk about, you know, I'm tripping, that's what I'm thinking, you know. But uh, so this vision, I'll call it, of my father says to me, oh, I'm glad I have your attention. Let's go take a walk. So, you know, of course, in the ceremony, you're not allowed to leave. So I asked permission from the leader. I said, hey, my father's here. Where else are you going to say to somebody, my dad's here, he passed away? And they go, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Only in an ayahuasca ceremony exactly, would they understand right? that. It, it is a common it is theme common. that people are visited by exactly, loved ones yeah. who've passed away. Yeah, and uh, so long story short, uh, he says, yes, as long as you stay within visual range, we need to see you. So I go... Uh, journeying with my father. And in that experience, basically, uh, through this conversation, what happens in the condensed version is that um, my father, his father, and my mother's father all appear to me. And they basically say, we brought you here because we wanted to apologize for the abuse that you suffered growing up. Because And my family, you know, it's a very interesting and dicey topic to always get into with the African-American uh, culture is um, the form of discipline, which is like spanking or beating or whipping, whatever they call it, is really commonplace. And so much so that growing up, that was normal. And I assumed like, well, this is just the way kids are raised, you know? And as I kind of grew up and started meeting other kids in school, I was actually shocked to find out that I was meeting like really good friends who were awesome who told me like, what, you're kidding? My father's never hit me. I'm like, no. <laughs> like, How did you turn out okay? <laughs> you know? So I'm like reflecting on that thinking, God, it's really strange, you know? So in this experience, Suddenly, as they're saying this, I am transported back. It was like that uh, near-death experience that people talk about at the end of life, where I'm suddenly replaying my life. And I'm watching all of these experiences of me being, you know, doing simple things like dropping a glass and breaking it. And then my father or grandfather's response would be to come with a belt, you know, and beep, 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 beep. And it just seemed like, well, that's what you do, you know? So as I'm watching all of that, I'm realizing what an effect that had on me and how that actually wasn't okay for a little very sensitive, you know, five or six-year-old. Six year old. And um, that vision turned into me seeing them being beaten by their fathers and their fathers and their fathers. All the way back, this vision goes to me watching slaves in Africa running through grasses being chased by either their own people or Europeans coming to, you know, bring slaves to America. And then it clicked. I'm like, oh my gosh. And all these like you know, ancestors, my father and their fathers, in that moment they're saying, yes, like this is something we inherited it. We don't know any other way, you know? And we apologize because we realize, you know, the reason it was passed down to you is because it was passed down to us. And this trauma within our community goes all the way back to slavery. There's no way around it, you know? And uh, in that moment, it was such a huge release of pent up both anger, frustration, you know, all the pain and suffering that was caused from that. And as you mentioned, you know, earlier, um, there is this sense of liberation. And it may seem simple, but in reality, what happened in that moment was I realized I feel like I'm standing in my own skin and my own body and consciousness for the first time in my life. I was like liberated, right? Yeah. So much so that it felt like, you know, I don't even know who this person is without that story, you know, running in the background. Um, so it was a tremendous help to me. And other things happen related to that that are in this monologue. Um, but that was the basis of it. 
So what I started seeing was like, wow, the African-American community particularly is so anti-drug um, and appropriately so because of how it's destroyed the community. But they're literally talking about drugs that were, as we know, kind of introduced into that community by now there's research you know, that proves it was by the CIA at some point. So they have this really interesting relationship with drugs because so many African-American men are in prison uh, from drug-related causes, either selling it or using it. So there's this whole stigma now that I feel like something like ayahuasca, which could be incredibly beneficial for my community, um, is, has such a stigma on it, you know, that they wouldn't even go near it, you know. But I feel like, you know, I'll be the poster child and a lot of other amazing African-American people I know that now use ayahuasca are reporting the same thing, like, wow, this could so liberate and benefit our community in our culture. Because I, I feel, too, uh, out of any culture in the U.S., I mean, just with the history of slavery and, and just mm. constant oppression, there has to be so much trauma there just has to built be. into the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. There just, there has to be. And from the inside out, you know, actually being raised in that community and being an African-American, you know, um, you, it's difficult to bring up these subjects. Like, I believe her name is Dr. Joyce O'Leary. She started touring around doing this um, lecture series that was basically called a uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome that was really rejected early on, not only by established, um, I know, the psychiatric community, because it, you know, to call it a syndrome, it has to be approved as one, but also within the African-American community, because what she was basically saying was, the reason we are the way we are is because we're all descendants of slaves, and we are the result of a culture that was extremely traumatized. You know, and um, she goes on in this lecture to explain all the reasons why. And I was gripped by that because I knew what she was saying was basically true. Maybe not all the details of it, but the overall essence of it was true because I lived it in my own experience, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for me, because I know that is true and I know that as a culture, as most, you know, cultures or people of color in the United States, to some degree, you're, you are the descendants of a group of people that were traumatized. You know, and not that Europeans weren't, that's why they came here, right? They're also escaping their own trauma um, and oppression. But um, my life took off because of that experience that I did in the all-male ayahuasca ceremony. I really felt like, wow, I am now liberated to kind of like move on this planet in an authentic way and accomplish what I want to do, have the kind of authentic relationships with people that I want to have and a depth of love that I know is possible that was all being shrouded and controlled by this trauma that was always hiding in the background. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I had a, a similar, yeah, similar experience, yeah. you know, and, and I think, I think people don't even realize that they're carrying around yeah. centuries of trauma and, but they're and not happy. Yeah. They're depressed, anxious. They can't figure out what's causing this. Right. And, and it's because we don't have many ways. We've taken it out of Western civilization mm. ways to purge this trauma, whereas native yeah. cultures have used entheogens and, mm -hmm. and psychedelics for thousands of years to just Purge these layers of pain and hurt, and exactly. and it just—it's such a shame that people don't have access to this widely uh, across the United States, especially. I was reading this book, and it, it, it could be the wrong book. I think it might have been *Wizard of the Upper Amazon*, um, and ayahuasca is discussed in there. But there's some section of it, and I'm hoping it's the right book. But very briefly, uh, this ceremony is talked about uh, somewhere in Amazonia, where once or twice a year. The whole community gets together and they brew the form of what might be alcohol now. It's kind of a beer substance, but um, here's an appropriate use for alcohol, right? But the whole purpose of this particular festival was that because they realized in order for tribes to survive, um, they all have a role and they all must get along. 
way because they've got each other's back. So this ceremony, what the shaman, you might say in this context of our conversation, would do is, okay, now is the time to bring up all of those um, confrontations that you've been like dealing with or hiding. So people were actually encouraged to get drunk and fight it out. It was like, yeah, this is the time we're going to do that. Right. And uh, but the point was they recognize the importance of um, bringing to light hidden animosities, hidden traumas, whatever it is, so that the tribe could actually at all times be healthy and survive basically in the wild. So I, I realized, you know, these kinds of one rites of passages that we don't offer, at least in any legitimate form in uh, Western culture overall, um, are, you know, it's been replaced with like graduating high school, you know, or yeah, now you get to go out and have your first night of drinking legally with your buddies. You know, that's like a rite of passage in this culture. Yeah, or or we send them people to college who don't even know who they are. They yeah, how are they, they supposed to pick to their their careers? Yeah. And and that's what happens. They and have, it's considered a rite of passage. You graduated, yay! And they're not in touch with their true selves, and they end up picking these careers that aren't their true paths in exactly. life. And then they end up depressed and anxious and and unsatisfied the rest yeah, of their yeah, lives. Exactly. Like we need that rite of passage. That's what we've taken out of it's Western crucial. culture. Yeah, it's crucial. Um, you know, we, as you know, I started an organization called the I Am Life Project, and it's a youth empowerment project. But one of its cores is basically that we realized, wow, these amazing youth we're running into, what's missing is rites of passages and connections and relationships with elders, right? So we focus on that, on authentic indigenous rites of passages, kind of updated so they make sense, you know, in the context of our culture. And uh, it's had a huge impact on the youth that are participating. They're in these beautiful relationships with like Native American elders and other elders in different cultures that um, they've gotten exposed to. But the difference I see in them, simply from being able to go and do like a Native American vision quest, you know, where at the end of that, you're actually acknowledged by your community as having gone through some rite of passage. Like we acknowledge that you have um, stepped into another level of, let's say, maturity, right? And uh, so we can relate to you in a different way. And I realized, you know, if you don't have that, what you end up with instead is like gang culture, you know, because young people know, particularly for boys, this testosterone comes on, you're going through puberty, you know, there's power surging, and society has to, in some way, both acknowledge that and put it to use in some way. And if it's not being offered, it will become destructive instead. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, they've talked to gang members that, um, you know, later, uh, I don't know what you call like post-gang, Oftentimes they'll say that that was the uh, motivation, was this acknowledgement that they received, you know, that they were being received and acknowledged as powerful and having, you know, skills and something to offer. And I thought, well, bingo, we're not offering that. You know, instead we're saying, go get a degree you don't need. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you might need it if you've decided for sure you want to be an anthropologist. But I just met somebody recently, classic, you know, who graduated after five years, you know, amazing degree and basically told me like, yeah, you know, I want to go to an ayahuasca ceremony because I have no idea what to do with myself. <laughs> you know? And that's what ayahuasca is so yeah. beautiful in doing it. It really, uh, for me personally, it's it's like laid out a map for my life. Yeah, right. It's almost like it got into my mind and was just just knew what I should be doing, mm. what I shouldn't be doing, and and one of those is doing what I'm doing now is focusing on ways to help people heal trauma. Thankfully, <laughs> the ayahuasca told me. Amber, you have this all wrong. You're yeah. just focusing on the symptoms, the wars, the slavery. Exactly. And me too, early on. Yeah, and, and yeah. You know, with your protesting. And, and, you know, it's like over and over, it just kept showing me, like, why are you wasting your time? The core mm. root of all of our problems on this planet are that people have not found ways to purge themselves indivi- on the individual level Purgatory. of trauma. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's so amazing about these medicines is that they're so empowering. They teach us that you can change the world by just changing yourself and healing yourself. And, and you have that, that power. Yeah, we hear that all the time. And even as 
uh, a young man doing like social activism work, even hearing that phrase, another part of me was like, well, it's also kind of silly. I can't really change the world by changing myself. Later, lo and behold, it's not true. That's, that's the only way, actually. And what I mean by that is each, you know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of amazing people I've met over the years have said something to this effect, that in the West, we don't have very developed language for talking about spiritual experiences because it's been so condemned. So what I'm about to say, yeah, starts moving into that realm where it sounds kind of woo-woo, you know. But it's true. What I started realizing through the work uh, with ayahuasca and enthusiasts in general that you do start to realize that you are connected to other people, right? And there, there is a collective consciousness that we share. So even by, you know, well, I look at the work of like the Institute of Heart Math, right? And some people find that science kind of bogus, but I'm reading more and more people doing similar work. And it, it basically is showing that our emotional states, on layman's terms, get encoded into the electromagnetic field that the heart produces. And they believe it's why you can tell when somebody's looking at you. You know, like when I walk into a room before you and I meet, these fields that we're projecting are meeting already, right? So they're saying that, you know, and not only are we communicating to each other through these fields, we're also tapped into the planetary electromagnetic field, you know, and probably beyond, right? So I look at that and I think in my own life, what I've seen, what people have reported back through ayahuasca uh, work and the theogenic work in general, is that they suddenly tap into that field and they suddenly realize, wow, I really am everybody else in the room. And who I am and what I'm thinking and how I'm being on the planet really is having an effect beyond me, right? So the fact that we don't completely fully understand that, or I would probably say have forgotten it, doesn't mean that it's not legitimate, you know, mm -hmm. and doesn't make a difference. And I've had enough experience now beyond hmm, cohesive, accepted language that describes it to know in my own experience that it's true. So 18 years. 18 years. Hard to believe. Yeah, you, you must have no ego whatsoever. I'm assuming it's well, here's been the completely funny thing dissolved about that. by My now. My friends would definitely argue that differently. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the difference is it's funny bringing that up the ego because a lot of Western spirituality, well, which we actually inherited from the East, so that's not completely true, it's all about this idea of the ego, right? Of diminishing the ego. And, um, what the gurus really, the spiritual teachers are saying is, it's really not about diminishing your ego. It's being able to function without that being in the driver's seat, basically. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, ayahuasca, as you know, will handle that in one session. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it, it shows you this very clear distinction between the truth of who you are, right? Your, I wouldn't want to call that, like your eternal state of actual presence and being versus this... Um, program that we're all running on, which is really all the ego is. It's kind of this downloaded program. I call it a survival tool, basically, which is necessary. You know, if, you, if we didn't have an ego, we would like step in front of a train, you know, or allow ourselves to be a doormat, you know, and just be taken advantage of. So fortunately, we do have this mechanism that is all about self-preservation, you know, that kicks in regardless of your thought process and basically preserves your physical existence, I think. But with that, in Western culture particularly, like really all over the world, but I think Western culture is the dominant now culture, you know, um, exported all over the world. Um, the eagle now looks like um, capitalism run amok, basically, fake forms of democracy, you know, and it looks like over-identification with fundamentalist anything, you know, um, whether it's Christianity or a political doctrine. You know, I find all of those to be manifestations of ego. Basically. 
And can you tell us about, so many people write me, I get dozens of emails, mm. what is an ayahuasca experience like? What, what, what? <laughs> and it's, it's almost like describing a dream after you've woken up. You can remember some things, it, it gets a little crazy, it's, yeah. it's very mystical, it's, it's terrifying and healing. Let's go back to your first ayahuasca session. Can oh you, boy, <laughs> not a good one. But 18 <laughs> years ago. Well, okay. Can you tell us, describe for us where yeah. you were and, and, and what happened after? The funny after thing you... about that is that after my first ayahuasca experience, I remember, even though it was mind-blowing quite literally, the next day, uh, the friend and I uh, that participated, actually, well, yeah, this these two, we both said the same thing. That was really cool. I'm never doing that again <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons because it's uncomfortable, as you know, um, and may not be. It can be obviously exquisite, too. Um, you but know, how did you get connected with the medicine? How did you first find I it? I was definitely, this was now again 18 years ago, ayahuasca was definitely not popular and not accessible really in the United States. So what happened was I was running a uh, business in Long Beach. It was called uh, Living Planet, which was the first all organic kind of coffee house, uh, at least in Long Beach. I don't know about Southern California. And because of that, we were drawing in a lot of alternative kind of like spiritual people. And I wasn't quote unquote a spiritual person at the time. I opened that place because I was very, I was an activist. So I was very concerned with the environment. So the idea of an all organic kind of socially responsible, fair trade business really appealed to me. Well, of course, what we started drawing in was a lot of um, very alternative counterculture people. Um, and that experience turned into us offering drum workshops and, you know, all kinds of people coming out of the woodworks wanting to do everything from like um, pagan, you know, ritual studies to um, artists like Lane Redmond, amazing frame drummer who recently passed away. Um, who changed all of our lives because she brought this frame drum into the shop, uh, Living Planet, and did this workshop. And with that, though, gave this lecture about the history of women playing the frame drum and how they were actually the first recorded uh, musicians, first drummers on the planet. So I bring that up because during that process, I started really awakening to, it started to condition my mind to be open to the possibility that I basically didn't have a full grip on reality, like a lot of what I was being told about history in the world wasn't true. So all of these experiences primed me for this guy walking in one day and saying, hey, there's this ayahuasca experience coming up. And if you guys, it's closed, but if you're interested, um, I'd like to invite you. And like a lot of people, I said, I what? <laughs> you know? yeah, and and, it's uh, not like you could have just gone on the internet at that point no, and, there was and no searched internet. up, read people's trip reports. Yeah. You, you were flying blind there. That's pretty Completely. brave. Well, the thing is, I was so open because of the experience of running this place. So... So what happened was there were a lot of things going on in my life uh, that just weren't kind of quite working. So I was like prime, like, well, I'm open to a new experience and I've been you know, exposed to a lot of different things because of this place. Um, so what happened was really, very really interesting. He's, when I asked him, I what, he said, well, have you seen the movie Emerald Forest or Emerald Jungle? I think it's called Emerald Forest. And uh, yeah, I had and I loved that film. And he goes, well, it's like that. So because of that, I had this idea like, oh, we're going to be in the jungle you know, crawling around, I'm going to connect with the spirit animals. I had this whole romanticized notion based on this film, uh, The Emerald Forest, of what was going to happen. And what he didn't tell us was it was actually an ayahuasca experience through the Santo Daime Church, right, which is very, very beautiful. But it was so contradictory to the um, story I had built up that, uh, you know, we go to this ceremony. Um, the uh, so you're sitting like in a church. For those that don't know about Santo Daime, it's one of the yeah. ayahuasca religions. It mixes exactly. Catholicism it's a with ayahuasca religion, basically syncretic. Yeah, predominantly Judeo-Christian with ayahuasca and you know uh, Yoruba, Candomblé, like all these different elements of um, Amazonian slash Afro-Cuban 
religions get kind of all mixed in. It's beautiful because of that. Um, but definitely throughout it, you're hearing Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And uh, if you're a Catholic or a Christian, you'll be perfectly at home in the Santo Daime. <laughs> so how did you feel period. sitting at the church? They, they give you the brew. Yeah, so here's the thing. I've got this jungle story in my head. And we go into the <laughs> ceremony, and actually there's like a cross on the table. And all the people leading have little like uh, uniforms on that they call uh, fardas. And they start singing these hymns, you know, and uh, what well, we drink, you know, and... Uh, they're singing these hymns and they're playing these, they call marakas, uh, shakers, and cans, so they're loud. And let me tell you, I was crawling out of my skin. I hated every minute of it. I'm like, those high shrill voices, these crazy can sounds. And really what was happening was, my first thought was, oh, I thought I was going to this beautiful jungle thing and I'm in a cult. So I had this whole story the whole time, like, they're trying to control me. <laughs> so I wasn't open to the experience. But what ended up happening, condensing the experience was, I wasn't feeling anything. And uh, I was convinced that everybody around me was like faking it. So at some point, I actually leave the ceremony and I, get, I find a phone somewhere in this setting. I don't know how I did that. And uh, I call my friend. And he goes, what are you doing calling me in the middle of ceremony? And I go, oh, dude, this thing is totally bogus. Nothing's really happening. There's all these people upstairs faking this experience. And I wasted my money. <laughs> so when one of the facilitators comes down and goes, what are you doing on the phone? And I'm like, oh, here come one of the Nazis. My exact words. So uh, long story short, he brings me back upstairs. He goes, you should really have a second drink. And I'm like, oh, no, here we go. So I stand in line, have the second drink, purely out of exasperation. I'm so over this experience that I finally, the surrender moment, however it comes, I cross my arms, which you're not supposed to do for uh, reasons I'll talk about. And uh, I finally just kind of collapse into my chair, right? My head explodes. And in that moment, finally, I have this first ever because... Here's the funny thing about me. No, outside of smoking pot occasionally, had done no experimentation whatsoever with psychedelics. So I wasn't even um, familiar with altered states of consciousness outside of smoking marijuana. So for me, it was a mind-blowing experience just for that alone. And uh, it was this beautiful visionary state that unfolded that the details wouldn't make sense to anybody but me. But the funny thing about that was at some point, purely like ego kind of like wanting to hide, um, I get on the floor kind of, I find out this later, and kind of crawl behind my chair because I wanted to purge. And I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to purge so nobody hears me, you know. And uh, in my head, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been such an asshole. I am such an asshole. So the next day, my good friend Sunny goes, oh, no, no, you were saying that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Blown away. But that was the beauty. What happened was it was my first ever experience of really um, being confronted with my ego. So the fact that it exposed me in that way ended up being the actual best medicine for me. So that's why later I said, that was really cool. I'm never doing that again. And I'm convinced that it's probably bad for you and um, will make me crazy, right? Well, the funny thing was during that experience, the predominant thought in my mind as I'm having this you know, other multidimensional time travel experience was in the background, I kept hearing myself say, oh, my poor mother, she's going to be so disappointed. I'm going to be one of those people now that just wanders on Venice Beach, you know, <laughs> mumbling. Because <laughs> I was just ignorant. Like, I'd, I had really, like all of us, and from what I understand, you too, I had really bought into the story that psychedelics were just bad for you and um, that I was going to be crazy and mentally deranged. You know, the absolute opposite was true. Yeah. And so you're, you're sitting there, you're getting these visionary experiences. Can you, it's, it's hard to describe, mm. but can you describe for someone who hasn't tried ayahuasca before what those experiences are like or these visions were like? It's really, it's one of the, 
as I said earlier, we don't have a really evolved language for talking about these experiences. But one of the things <clears throat> early on that I questioned about ayahuasca and um, all entheogenic um, experiences was I thought, this is my mental self at the time thinking, if these experiences are, are authentic and what I'm experiencing is, experiencing is quote unquote true, then why isn't everybody experiencing the same thing, right? And uh, what I later got through an ayahuasca experience and through work with like um, Joseph Campbell, you know, Carl Jung, was we all actually have our own kind of mythic landscape, right? Um, probably both culturally induced and just maybe through your own life experience. And what I started to realize was that you know, ayahuasca, referred to as mama ayahuasca, the intelligence, um, which it could be your, your own higher self, who knows, but the intelligence that appears and communicates to you in ayahuasca, what it revealed to me was, you know, pure intelligence or consciousness, awareness is existing in a terrain, we'll call it, beyond language. Language is, you know, a construct, you know, that's why there's so many of them. Um, so what you're actually getting are pure kind of thought forms or ideas that have to be translated to make sense to you. So I start because what happened was I realized after this one ceremony, once we, this new idea of integration started coming into ayahuasca ceremonies where there would be like sharing circles afterwards, right? And I realized in this one ceremony, actually a lot of us did have the exact same experience. The same information came, but it appeared to each person in the most poignant, personal way possible, basically. So for me, I was having these amazing visions of like um, this huge row of like choir robes lined up on into infinity. Now I come out of a Southern Baptist background, so that was really a recognizable image to me. You know, what it brought up to me was uh, safety of religion, basically. And my mom was a choir director. We learned to sing in the choir. Um, so that was really comforting. But all of a sudden, those choir robes all became the wings of butterflies, and they took off in every direction. That's how my journey actually started. So it like really caught my attention. And from that, basically a lot of beautiful, this like pantheon of beautiful, mythic, kind of archetypal images that basically through, just through imagery, unfolded a whole story that started to reveal myself to myself, basically in terms of like how I came to be who I was and how I was kind of constructed, basically. Which is why at some point, as it kind of finally caught up to present day, and I was looking at my behavior within my community and my close friends, I started saying like, oh my gosh, I have been such an asshole and didn't realize it. And that's how I ended up crawling around the chair saying, you're such an asshole. You know? <laughs> but I was saying it from a really affectionate place, like I had no idea I was being an asshole. <laughs> And, and that's the beauty of psychedelics Absolutely. is because you get in that train of thought and you don't yeah. even realize you're doing things or harming others with your action. Exactly. Um, but, but psychedelics definitely will, will let well, you know what's yeah. up. You know, interestingly enough, years later, I uh, met my first, um, what I would call like, again, the language in the West, first real like profound spiritual teacher. Not from reading books, everything's like teaching you, but uh, I met Gangaji, who comes out of the Avaita tradition of non-duality, non-dual teachings from uh, India. She's Western. And uh, I got introduced to this concept of self-inquiry. And it, within the Avaita tradition, what they say is, you know, when you reach this level of spiritual study, it's, it's considered the last teaching. It's the last study. Because basically you transcend the need to be in a study outside of yourself. The whole study is self-inquiry. It's actually looking within and looking at your own experience and being able to trust that just through observation, right, and tapping into um, this really present state of awareness, you can actually see exactly what's going on in any given moment in a situation. You can actually look at the world and, and you'll be, um, trust yourself to analyze 
what's going on around you and be able to cognize that in a way that makes sense to you that you could actually do an analysis, basically. Um, I'm, I'm very westernizing these teachings. Um, but I got that through ayahuasca. I started to understand, like, it actually all is about self-inquiry, you know, about really going into the self. It's through yourself that you can connect with the rest of the world, that you can... Um, in my case, look at all the quote-unquote problems in the world that I was trying to solve through protesting, which is basically reacting. And then I want to qualify, uh, we definitely need protesters. I love that there are people on the front lines bringing our attention constantly to these problems. The problem with that is that they all know too is that it's not an effective tool overall because what we're always doing is like, you know, problem, reaction, problem, reaction. Just pointing at the symptoms over exactly. and over and well, over. Symptom, 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 wrong, 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 wrong. You know, I go, and I thought... That's fine, and I appreciate those folks, but because I am somebody who's capable of you know, um, actually making a difference, as I started to see myself, where I want to go is to the front lines, like the real front lines. And to me, the real front lines are consciousness. You know, it's no way around it. It's um, evolving consciousness. You know? One thing that uh, fascinates me and, and I think terrifies some people mm. are, are the purging process. Uh, yeah. of taking ayahuasca. And, <laughs> Glad and that's, you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, and that's what makes, I, I think that's what makes it so ridiculous when people say that ayahuasca needs to be schedule one and can be abused because it's non-addictive. It's proven to actually increase serotonin levels Absolutely. in the brain. And when you're on it, it would be impossible to go to a club or just hang out oh with your gosh. friends. It is so not a recreational <laughs> substance. It's ridiculous. Because you're, you're getting sick for some people yeah. out of both ends pretty, pretty violently. Yeah, you know, ayahuasca works um, as a purgatory, meaning it causes you to purge. Um, the most dramatic form is, you know, actually like vomiting, you know, or like in either end. But people also purge emotionally. Um, they're sweating in ceremonies, crying, laughter. Some people start laughing and can't stop, you know. But then later, when they explain what they're experiencing, that was their purge. It was a cathartic experience of this uncontrollable laughter. Maybe that's been suppressed for years. Who knows? Um, but it's definitely working, at least initially, um, by allowing you to purge whatever it is um, that is a source of the dis-ease. And I say that really carefully because people are being healed um, by physical ailments as well. But through my years of working with the medicine, all of that always ends up being connected to going to the source, as you brought up earlier, of um, whatever is the impetus or the uh, cause of the disease. And some shamans call it getting well. And oh, so, yeah. you know, we, we would call it getting get sick. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Mainly because <laughs> you're so nauseous and just uncomfortable by the time that happens. You're so grateful when the purge finally happens in whatever form it happens. It's like, oh my gosh, thank God. <laughs> you know? And then suddenly, though, for most people, the purge is kind of the, um, you know, the apex of the experience in a sense because everything's been building up to that. And then finally, you purge out this thing and then you're just with the medicine and the ceremony in such a beautiful way because you're no longer processing or fighting this discomfort, basically. Yeah. So that's why it's called getting well. You suddenly feel like, oh my gosh, yeah, you feel fantastic, you know, was, you know. I know, <laughs> I found it phenomenal that the next day after violently vomiting mm -hmm. an entire night, I, I just felt great. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. Run five miles, and it's so you know. so counterintuitive. I mean, again, it's like that ego thing, like naturally it's going to kick in and tell you, Hey, your heart rate is slowing down or speeding up, or your breathing is getting shallow or speeding up. Hey, you feel sick. So you're getting these signals from your brain, your ego, telling you this is not good for you, mm -hmm. right? So you should uh, do whatever is necessary to get out of this experience because it's probably going to kill you, 
right? And what you realize is the opposite is true. Suddenly, yeah, when the purge comes, all of that is blown out the window. And then you sit there in this space of like, oh my gosh, it's like some, for some people, in my case, definitely the best I'd felt in my entire life. And, and I think ayahuasca behaves like a medicine should. And we're so mm. disoriented in the West as to what a medicine is and what a yeah. drug is. And more of our prescription medications behave more like drugs. They just mask the symptoms. They exactly. make you feel great when you're on them, but then yeah. you need them the rest of your life. Whereas like the ayahuasca experiences can be a little bit uh, hellish, but then the next day you wake up feeling great yeah. and, and you don't need it anymore. And most people know. are unwilling. It's so fascinating to me. And again, I think it's part of uh, how Western culture has developed um, void of and, and actively stamping out these ritual processes of catharsis, right? Of voluntarily going into uncomfortable situations so that you can benefit on the other side of that. Um, and I think it's probably just a product also of just capitalism slash materialism, you know, this idea of constantly let's buy more things to make life more comfortable. You know, don't go spend your money or your time investing on something that's going to be uncomfortable, even if it's good for you. You know, and then you, you brought up the thing with pharmaceuticals. The big joke to me is like the vast majority of them, at least the ones you can buy over the counter, you read them and it just common sense is telling you, it's saying very clearly to treat symptoms of, none of them say we're helping you cure anything with rare exception, right? Yeah, so all they're doing is basically giving you um, relatively ineffective ways and poisonous and toxic ways of dealing with the symptoms of the actual thing that you want to heal. You know, so I find that really absurd. So I think because of that, a lot of people, it's kind of a foreign notion to, well, instead I want to actually go be uncomfortable, you know, but knowing that this uncomfortable experience could actually transform my life. Uh, and because that's not, that awareness or a practice isn't, I don't know, obvious or available in our culture, it seems very counterintuitive. Where in a lot of indigenous cultures, that makes perfect sense. It's like, hey, I don't feel really well. Hey, take this plant and it'll make you throw up. That's just common knowledge, you know, all over Amazonia. Here people are like, you got to be kidding. I want to take something that like, makes me feel good and I don't have to throw up. <laughs> like, well, guess what? In life, you get to throw up. That's what it's about. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about safety. Uh, who should not be taking ayahuasca? Are there any mm. limitations? I know that Definitely antidepressants are a no-no. Absolutely. Um, yeah. can, can you explain to, to people what, what concerns should be addressed safety-wise? There's really only two that are dominant. Uh, one is any kind of antidepressant, antihistamines, basically MAO inhibitors. Too complicated a subject to get into here, but you'd have to just, I would say just do your homework. There is a category of pharmaceuticals that you absolutely should not be on if you want to um, have an ayahuasca experience. And a lot of people that will go to Peru or wherever to do ayahuasca, they'll contact the doctor and because it's legal there, they'll go, I'm going to do this. So what I want to know is um, how do I get off this? And that's what people do. The doctors will help them for a period of time, get off the substances or at least down to a safe level. There are very few of them that are safe. So that you can have the experience and then either be off it if it's successful and success rate is really high or to ease back onto it when you're done. Um, so if you're on any kind of prescription medication, you want to basically, which is fortunately now available through sites like yours and on the internet, um, just write in contraindications for ayahuasca and it'll pop up all the things you don't want to be on. The other category of people are, this is a, the jury's still out on this one actually. Um, when I talked to one of my mentors, uh, Neil Marshall Goldsmith, I contacted him once uh, about a young man that wanted to travel to do an ayahuasca experience who I thought was a little questionable psychologically, <laughs> put it that mm -hmm. way. And I contacted Neil and he said, you know, this is what we know or what we think we know, to quote him directly. 
ayahuasca does not cause psychotic behavior, you know, but it can trigger it if you're predisposed to it. But then the jury's out on whether or not that's bad, because um, if it's going to come up anyway, and the onset is usually around the age of 27, ironically, this young man was 27. That's for like schizophrenia? Yeah, schizophrenia. Uh -huh. like, well, to be, he actually said uh, schizoid behavior was his okay. exact word. He said it doesn't cause schizoid behavior, but if you're predisposed to it, it may trigger it, you know, and not in everybody. But then he says, you know, but, you know, maybe that's the perfect place. If it's going to happen anyway, in the context of a legitimate, quote unquote, shaman or facilitator, you know, and over a period of time, which is exactly what has transpired, by the way, for this young man, um, sure enough, his schizoid behavior was triggered. I was very concerned about it. But um, rather than, which I couldn't do anyway because he's an adult, um, you know, his family contacted me and said, hey, uh, our friend just got back from wherever he was traveled to to do this experience. And we're concerned about his behavior. You know, and I said, well, look, he's an adult. You can't tell him not to do it. Um, so let's see what happens. And sure enough, now it's been a year and uh, been a transformation. So. And what is the importance of set and setting? I know set, uh, this is said over and over again when it comes to uh, taking these well, medicines. That's like as the foundation, is. absolutely. And, and set is your mindset. It's what you go in wanting from the medicine, what type of healing you want. Right. The intention. Um, and, and setting is also where you're doing it. Yeah, the set is just that. It's your, your personal mindset, intention, and of the person facilitating. I combine the two. And the setting is the actual, uh, both are intention-based, basically. Um, yeah, is the setting appropriate you know, for the experience to unfold in? Is there a qualified sitter or facilitator present with experience? Um, is the setting that you're in conducive to the experience to unfold in? You know, meaning as opposed to you're at a rave and decide you're going to do DMT, you know, which people do, you know, which personally I think is crazy, but <laughs> it happens. Uh, how yeah. do you get the ideal setting for someone? Maybe someone's not necessarily doing ayahuasca. Maybe they're mm. doing another entheogen. Maybe they're choosing to do it in their home. Not that we advocate any illegal oh, yeah, behavior, well, we, <laughs> but, yeah, but how do you that get... Up because we know what's happening anyway. So we might as well teach people how to do it safely. Yeah. And how, how do you get the ideal setting? Say you're going to do it in your backyard or at home. What, what, yeah. what would you recommend? Yeah, basically what we just talked about. One is to have a really clear intention. You know, and I, I can't stress that enough. A lot of people hear that and think, again, it's kind of airy-fairy talk. But, you know, at the last MAPS conference that I was at last January, I think, April maybe, um, one of the things the researchers were sharing was that um, they didn't say our research has been flawed, but they've said, you know, one of the things we're realizing is that a, a major component missing from our research, let's say in this case about ayahuasca, is the, the intention, you know, meaning the person is actually coming to the ceremony or to the shaman for a particular reason. So that starts to overlap into kind of the placebo effect. You know, you have an intention for being there to actually do um, exploration, you know, or to do some kind of self-work or healing. So that's part of the, of the setting is, you know, what's, be really clear on why you're doing it, first of all. You know, even if what you're saying to yourself is, I just want to experience mushrooms and maybe like trip. Every time I've set an attention before a ceremony, I've always had that Huge addressed. Right? Exactly. Definitely. I just, yeah. right before I ingest the, the medicine, I, I close my eyes and I, and I ask uh, whoever right. <laughs> um, for, for a particular type of healing. Exactly. I'm always given that. And maybe, maybe it's just all created in my head. Maybe they're, it's, all, it's more of a spiritual thing. It doesn't matter, but yeah. I, it's always addressed. So I, I do agree with you on yeah, that. Yeah, I think part of that, like, Someone who gets a hold of through a neighbor, um, who knows what, you know, mushrooms, and decides I want to actually explore with this, you know. And again, I want to advocate because we're speaking publicly. I don't advocate 
casual drug use, even entheogenic use, because we know it is illegal here. However, people are doing it anyway and have access to it. You know, so it's uh, important to share, I think, safe and effective uses of it because it's happening anyway. You know, the average teenager I have met over the last year with through this I Am Life project, without any exception, every one of them has tried everything I brought up. Yeah, and some of them in not very healthy situations at all, right? So I think it's really valuable to, uh, as we talked, just come out of the closet with the fact that it's available, people are doing it, and the opportunities and potentials are being missed because it's so taboo and being oppressed, right? So this backyard experience, we'll call it, um, one is to have a clear intention of why you're going to do it. Two is to have a sitter, someone who's experienced um, that can actually, what we call, hold space for you so you can go on your journey and can be there in case it goes awry because it might, you never know. So and, that would just would be like a friend or family member who could maybe answer yeah. the door, <laughs> the doorbell yeah. rings or, yeah. or... Or just like, you know, like, you know, okay, you're going to go on your next six-hour experience. I'm going to make sure you're safe, you know. So if you're going to hang out in the backyard for six hours and commute with nature, whatever your, your intention is, uh, having somebody there that knows that you're doing it, that is not on the same substance, that is completely, you know, solar, we call it in a um, default reality, and uh, can basically we call hold space, meaning they're going to look out for you and take care of anything, quote unquote, linear that needs to get handled so you can have this experience. And also there's a sense of safety in that too. You know, you feel much more comfortable going through the more possible difficult passages of an entheogenic experience if you know that somebody's there like watching over you. So that's, that's really important. Of course, the other is safety, making sure that whatever it is you're trying comes from a reliable source to the degree that you can do that. And most importantly, you know, again, back when I started this journey, information wasn't available like it is now. Now we have like, you know, the vaults of Irwid and other, uh, well, eventually reset me, I guess. Um, where yeah, that's erowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org. It's a Irwid, fantastic yeah. site to go on to fantastic. if you want to look up trip reports, you want to find out about mm -hmm. a particular substance, anything yeah, psychedelic I, related. Yeah, and I love that site because it's so fair. They give you the DEA's take on it. They give you the researching uh, uh, researchers' take, um, results of research, uh, very impartial, but then also a lot of, as you know, antidotes, people that are just saying, uh, this is how I did it, in what setting, and what happened with me and what I learned, which is really an amazing resource to actually have, you know, outside of the um, clinical research. Um, so for me, that's most important. Um, do your homework, find out everything you need to know about the substance that you want to uh, experiment with, and um, yeah, just be fully informed. The other thing about that is because you'll be a lot more comfortable and secure knowing that you've done your homework and you understand the, the arc and the effects, basically, of the journey you're going to go on. How is it that you've seen, I think what's fascinating about ayahuasca is that it's mm. definitely leaving the jungle. <laughs> we, oh boy. Yeah. Even in, in just my year of, of studying it and, and working with the medicine, I, I've seen it really spread across yeah, across the world. How have you seen it leave the jungle and spread into Western communities? It's amazing. You know, uh, it's a, there's this concept now um, we're all dealing with people within the uh, entheogenic community, you know, advocates for their rightful place, I think, in uh, Western culture, well, global culture at this point. Um, this uh, phenomenon we're calling ayahuasca tourism, you know, um, which initially just referred to all the Americans that you know, flocked to South America um, to do ayahuasca, rightly so. But because of that, it spurned this whole, um, I don't know what do you even call it, like market there, you know, where you can get off the plane. And it used to be, you know, get bracelets, get, you know, feathers, get uh, llama skin, whatever. And now it's like ayahuasca, ayahuasca in every corner, right? And which, of course, is dangerous, you know, because 
um, a lot of these people can make in one ayahuasca journey with one person what they can make sometimes in a whole year right, of doing this other work. So that's dangerous. Um, in the West, that tourism now is just uh, also included in what we call just the popularity of ayahuasca. You know, there are so many articles now, like uh, LA Weekly, a lot of them, you know, reporting on ayahuasca, showing up as scenes in films, and not very favorably. You know, I really think actually really irresponsibly. Um, because again, they are um, taking the experience and kind of, um, it becomes a comic, mm -hmm. almost. Right? I've noticed that too, like it's almost yeah. like a joke. They take the, the exactly. sacredness out of the medicine, that's and so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the actual effectiveness and the cathartic possibilities and the healing that comes from it. And it just becomes this like other funny thing that Western people do to trip, basically. Yeah, which is really a disservice to the possibility. So amongst all of the um, ayahuasquedos and uh, researchers that I've come in contact with, there's ongoing discussion about it's on our radar that there is this ayahuasca tourism and popularity. And so now there's a movement towards uh, legalization, how to approach that and how to come up with, which I'm really, really happy about, um, standardization of use, which is scary to a lot of shamans because they don't want to have to adhere to some guidelines, right? Because they've been doing this, as you know, for eons. And, and shamans are the healers that are delivering yeah, the medicine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or ayahuasquedos. Or in, and they're in now, they've now left the jungle. So they're, they're now here. I mean, I've Traveling, heard of friends yeah, of that course. live in the, the Hamptons that have ayahuasca oh, yeah. ceremonies or it's happening in, in Los Angeles, Chicago. I mean, people every month you know, that have had an amazing, mind-blowing, life-altering experience, not in Peru, not in Amazonia, in Texas, <laughs> you know, yeah. right, from a traveling shaman or someone that um, was able to get ingredients and brew the medicine and smart enough to train themselves to facilitate a ceremony, you know. Yeah, so again, you know, the qualifier, yes, it's illegal, actually in kind of a gray area because, you know, the ayahuasca church in Oregon is now legal. The ayahuasca church in Oregon um, has been legalized and um, the UDV, Uniao de Vegetal, which is another um, official ayahuasca church, they're legal um, all over North America as far as I know. So, um, so you're saying that ayahuasca isn't completely illegal in the U.S. How, how can it be accessed legally? You, well, you either have to go, at this point, you got two really legal options. You can actually go to Oregon and uh, discover the Santo Daime Church there, beautiful people there facilitating, and participate in a more Judeo-Christian um, structured version of that ceremony. Still very, very powerful and worthwhile. Um, or you got to go to Amazonia, you know, go to some place where it's legal, and, and which I highly recommend because you're in the actual jungle and it's a different experience, which is what you had, you know. So otherwise, it's illegal unless you're within the church in the United yeah, States. Yeah, unless you're within the one of the two churches, it's legal. Or you fly to Amazonia, it's technically illegal. The reason why I say gray area is because you know, DMT is what's illegal. Ayahuasca itself, the tea isn't. And the two, you know, it, it shows up in the, what they call the female version of the brew, um, Psychotropus viridis, the leaves. But it's only active because the vine is there, which the natives call the male aspect of it, Banisteriopsis copy. That's the actual ayahuasca vine. That is an MAO inhibitor, which we touched on earlier. In very layman's terms, your body breaks down um, DNT really fast in your stomach, right? Enzymes that do that. Um, the vine actually, it inhibits, what's called an MAO inhibitor, inhibits it from those enzymes from breaking it down. Right. Um, so it can actually get into the bloodstream and get into your brain or, as I say, actually like commune with you, you know, and meet you. Um, so you have to have the two together, which is really interesting, that synergy. Um, 
Yeah, so because of that, DMT is illegal. And here's the interesting thing. My first uh, DMT experiences, which happened after my ayahuasca experience, it was legal then. We actually bought DMT right in line from a place called like American Chemical Supply. It was like, oh, 100 bucks, $30, and we got ayahuasca, and we were <laughs> holding these ceremonies, feeling totally okay because it was legal. Within a few months of doing that, uh, it got scheduled. And this friend, we went to purchase it, and he gets like some message from like the DEA say, you know, he wasn't in trouble because it was legal when he ordered yeah. it. They're like, oh, this shite is shut down, and by the way, this is now illegal. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was like, whoa, <laughs> right? So, um, so basically, it is really recent. Yeah. And so the Supreme Court has ruled, I, I think it was in two cases, that mm -hmm. these churches can use it under the Religious Absolutely. Freedom Restoration Act. Precisely. And so you can access it in the U.S. if you don't want to go to As long as, yeah, it's in the context of these two churches and it's religious use, which it is, um, it's legal. Otherwise, you got to fly if you want to do it illegally. I'm sorry, legally. Now, needless to say, there are travel, uh, shamans traveling and um, I call them like American-born shamans in Iowa schedules that discovered the medicine, how effective it was, and have led ceremonies ongoing underground because they've needed to, you know. So it's kind of a form of activism for some of these oh, people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they realize through their use, as, uh, in my case, you know, I've seen the transformation, um, both physical healing, mental healing, um, you know, we'll call spiritual psychological healing over the years, that of course I have to be an advocate. I've seen it literally save lives, you know. As I mentioned, this one uh, young lady was just telling me recently, she said, this was my last draw. She said, you know, I was tired of being depressed. I couldn't even function, basically. And she said, she goes, this medicine saved my life. And I haven't used that term yet. It is a medicine. We haven't touched on that. You know, ayahuasca is all over Amazonia and all over the world, in a lot of places, considered a medicine, which is what it is. That's why it's so fascinating, this whole conversation even, about it being a psychedelic or an entheogen. It's like... For hundreds of years, some people say thousands, um, uh, we don't know if that's true or not, um, it was used as a medicine, mainly for physical healing. You know, the, uh, some of the research shows that ayahuasca being used as a cathartic medicine for like spiritual exploration or healing really kind of synergized with Western tourism. You know, prior to that, people were going to shamans and drinking ayahuasca because they had tumors or like illnesses or what they called kind of like um, psychological disorders that the culture would interpret as um, like witchcraft. Oh, well, that person has really ill thoughts about you. Therefore, they're sending what they would call spiritual darts at you. So we're going to like remove that, right? Didn't matter, it worked, right? <laughs> whatever terminology they were using. Yeah, so for me and the group of people that you know, I associate with and know, is really, the advocacy comes from knowing that we have this incredibly valuable, effective medicine you know, that doesn't have side effects. It's not harmful. You know, 18 years later, I'm proof of it. And uh, yet at the same time, it's illegal. Yet, as we talked about, you can go buy things that will kill you over the counter you know, if you don't follow directions carefully. You know? It's literally a form of what I call, uh, I don't know, like, uh, I'll just say craziness, you know, that, well, it's pathological. That a I think a symptom of this culture. insanity. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the best word. It really is a symptom of the insanity that over-regulation mixed with um, capitalism has created in our culture. And I think that's one of the things we want to do with Reset.me is really take mm. this conversation out of the closet. Absolutely. Because so many people are doing these medicines. You might as well give them tips on how to do them safely, how to get the most out of their experience. Right. And also just give hope to people out yeah. there who feel like there aren't any medicines or any solutions so that they know there's one more step you can try Absolutely. before you give up. You know, there's, there's another step to take. And, uh, yeah, and this, 
Yeah, I, I don't want to come across in our conversation as being like anti-Western medicine. Needless to say, we've made incredible advances that have saved lives, saved lives and there are medicines that have saved lives, including I, I met a young man who uh, went to Amazonia and was able to get off of his antidepressant uh, medication, um, which he was really grateful for. However, it was anti-anxiety, I think. Um, but he told me, he said, but he goes, I have to tell you, I am so grateful for that medicine because at the time that I was having these uncontrollable anxiety attacks, that saved my life. Mm. It's just that I wanted to get off of them, right? So I think for a lot of people, um, it becomes um, kind of like your last hope. Like you tried everything else, you tried the conventional things, and there is something else available. Uh, and for that reason, it needs to be available. I would hope eventually it could be a first line of defense, but uh, at the moment I'm okay with it being like your last ditch effort. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Tony, for oh, coming on the you. show today. I think you were yeah. such a wealth of knowledge for, for our listeners, especially people who are curious about this medicine and yeah. potentially thinking of making the trip down to Peru or mm -hmm. attending one of these underground ceremonies. Uh, how can people find out more information about what you've been up to and really follow your work? I'm glad you asked, and this is the reason why, because uh, everything that I now do, um, obviously I can't you know, offer ayahuasca because it's illegal here, but the knowledge of it certainly I can. Um, but it was through the, my work with ayahuasca that I started to develop through insights in that, the kind of work that I'm doing. So I'm predominantly a musician, as you know. I sing and write music, and I perform with a band called The Love Ant Project. And we started that... Um, based on what we were talking about earlier, this research, amazing, through the Institute of Heart Math, you know, that is showing that we're connected through these electromagnetic fields of our heart. And we kind of felt like, gosh, love is such an airy-fairy kind of toss-away concept in our culture. So we thought, you know, through music, we're all artists, let's take that message out to people in a way that's really accessible. So because we we're artists, that was a logical way to do it. So although now that project, the Love Room Project, has actually been, it's become synonymous with a, a band itself, all of our performances, events, music is all around basically promoting this concept, this research. We bring it up in every performance. The other, as I mentioned, is the I Am Life Project, which we're really excited about. Um, that's a youth empowerment project that uh, focuses on two things, interconnectivity, um, the co-concept of that and what it means to be connected, uh, both scientifically and spiritually. And with that, the importance of bringing youth um, back into good relationship with adults and elders. So um, we're taking uh, three or four young uh, people this October to uh, meet the Shipibo uh, and the, uh, the Yawanawa tribe in Amazonia. And then the following year, we're taking 20 uh, youth, uh, mostly inner city, to meet the Achuar people through the Pachamama wow. Alliance, yeah, to Amazon. Yeah, and that's not to do ayahuasca, although that might happen there. It's really about bringing them into direct contact with indigenous people in Amazonia so that it's not some foreign abstract concept. You know? They're actually meeting these people, sitting in conversation with them, and basically coming up with uh, ways to solve problems that we're mutually facing. And so what are your websites? What are the websites or, or pages people can go to yeah, to both, find out more information? Um, have websites under those names, the, the loveamproject.org. Um, or on Facebook as... L-U-V-A-M-P? Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. L-U-V-A-M-P. Dot org? One word, loveamp.org. Okay. And the other is I am life. We spell it I dot A-M dot life. On Facebook, it's spelled that way. And the website, Life Reset Me, is actually uh, gestating, but the page is up for it. And that launches in mid-May with some really exciting content that we're excited about. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you, Tony, thank and, you. and best of luck along all your journeys. And we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today. I'm uh, really grateful for the opportunity, and thank you for the work you're doing.